0: In 1 Corinthians 10, we will now bring to a close a discussion that started way back in chapter 8. If you were around then, you read with us that beginning of chapter 8 that talked about the topic, the discussion started, the questions that the Corinthians had surrounding food and eating. Now, I know you look at this like I look at this like more about food and eating. I've had enough with the holidays of food and eating. But the Corinthians are trying to figure out what Christianity looks like to be lived out in their culture, in their city, in the same way that we have to figure out what does Christianity look like to be lived out in our culture and in our time and in our county. They lived in a city filled with temples to gods like Zeus and Aphrodite and Asclepius and so on. The question was, do we have the freedom to eat meat that has been sacrificed in honor of and to those gods? And do we have the freedom to eat a meal at the table associated with, at the restaurant, you could say, associated with the temple of that god? And Paul does not give them a simple yes or no answer. He could, he just said, well, yes or no. But he doesn't say that. He gives us three chapters of information. And since we don't live in a city filled with idols' temples, some of this will not have direct application to our lives. But by listening and understanding what Paul is saying and how he explains to them their dilemma and how to answer that question, we learn the very important skill of learning to think like a Christian. So we can apply the principles to all kinds of dilemmas that we face. Let's face it, let's be honest, every situation that you face is not written directly about and specifically about in the Bible. Are we together in that? Absolutely. So we have to learn to think and apply biblical truth to the dilemmas that we face. So three chapters later, Paul now gives us some wonderful foundational principles that although we're not struggling with food sacrificed to idols and idols' temples, there are other struggles we have that may need the same information to help guide us through how to behave and how to react and how to respond in those situations. You see, food itself, Paul already told them, they already agreed, has no spiritual ramifications whatsoever. The content, the molecules of my food, the proteins and sugars, do not have any spiritual ramifications regarding my relationship to God. Food is food. You can eat pork or pound cake. You can eat shrimp or choose soy. You can be a vegetarian or a full-on carnivore. Some of the guys are saying, amen, pastor, preach it. This has no impact or reflection or influence on the love of God for us. He doesn't love vegetarians more than he loves meat eaters. He doesn't love seafood eaters less or more than he loves non-seafood eaters. It's irrelevant to God. But the context and the company can and do have spiritual considerations regarding meals that we eat. See, many times for us, Our culture, our meals, our time of eating, well, it's simply to get calories into my body. We're busy, we're on the road, we're in the car, we're between practices, we have to schnarf down some fast food just to get something called calories into our body. Sometimes we eat alone, and sometimes we eat in groups. And oftentimes, those meals are just common meals. But there are other times when meals in our life take on a much greater significance Group meals can and do have tremendous significance for our lives. Think about it for a minute. Weddings, there's food. Funerals, there's food. Banquets and business deals and birthdays, there's food. Fundraisers and holidays often revolve around food. And these are meals where the focus is not on the what that we are eating, but the why we are eating and the who is hosting and the who we're eating with. See, the food in some situations is less significant than the relationships and the purpose that are being affirmed and cemented around the table. Being included and participating in such a group meal says, I belong. It says, these are my people. It says, this is who I am. It's inclusive. Much has been written about the importance of family mealtime in our day. Family therapist Ann Fishel half jokes that people in her profession of family therapy could be out of business if more families just had regular family dinners together. 20 years of research and the development of the Harvard-based origins of the Family Dinner Project demonstrated that regular family dinners can be linked to lower rates of substance abuse and depression as well as improved physical health. So with all this background about thinking about family meals, and corporate meals, and eating together the who and the why, not just the what, I hope we can together think a little more deeply about what it is we're about to read. Because Paul begins with a pretty blazing restriction for them. He says in verse 14, therefore, the conclusion of this question about can we eat meat sacrificed to idols, the conclusion is my beloved people, I like that he endears them to himself again, flee from idolatry. And he says, I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. Hey, I'm talking to you guys because you're smart people. And I would say the same thing today. You guys, you're smart people, and I need you to think about this. And he says, run away, run as fast as you can. And in the Greek, it would say, keep on running from the idolatry, from the things they've talked about, from eating meat in the context of at the place where false gods are worshiped. See, for them, that was the specific contest. Don't go down to the temple of Zeus or the temple of Serapis or the temple of Aphrodite to have your meal in that context. Now, we don't have those temples in our community, so what is the context of idolatry for us? For us, I would say, Paul would say, flee or run away from anything that begins to captivate your thought life and consume your time and energy more than the things of God. If it becomes for you an obsession, it has already become an idol. It can be a relationship. Oftentimes, that's what's so dangerous about teen dating because that relationship then becomes an obsession and no longer a relationship. It's now fallen into idolatry. And it's very dangerous to get dragged into that. Any relationship can become idolatrous. It can become the thing that is the most important relationship more so even than my relationship with God. Family relationships can be that way. Money, an activity, a hobby, a self-image, anything that everything else submits to regarding my time, my energy, and my resources, the things I sacrifice. Singer, songwriter, Zach Williams, maybe you know him, maybe you don't. He's the guy that's famous for writing the song Chain Breaker. He wrote that while doing prison ministry. And one of the lines just stuck out to me as I thought about this song. He says, we've all searched for the light of day in the dead of night. We've all found ourselves worn out from the same old fight. This is the line I like. We've all run to things we know just ain't right, but there's a better life. That's what he says in the song. And that's what Paul is saying to them. They're desiring to run to things that just ain't right. Run to the idol's temple. Have their freedom to enjoy that. And Paul says, I actually want you to flee from it. Have you found out that no one else can flee for you? You have to recognize when idolatry is an issue for you and then you have to proceed to run from it and all that it represents because God sent his son Jesus to set people free and idolatry puts you back into bondage to whatever that thing or that person is. So flee from that, he says. So why is this so important, Paul? Why is it so important to take that drastic of a step to get away from idolatry. What's the big deal? So Paul takes them to their own sacred meal to teach them some important truths. He said, verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread, one body. For we all partake of that one bread. So Paul says, let's look at the significance of our own communion meal, of our own sacred meal of worship that we enjoy as Christians. And this whole section hinges on the word communion, which is the Greek word koinonia. Have you heard that word before, koinonia? Okay, well, if you haven't heard it before, you've heard it now. It's a Greek word, difficult to translate into English. It means joint participation or sharing. And it speaks of an intimate relationship. If we're going to share something, if we're going to share in something, there's an intimacy there. There's a relationship there. There's an affiliation there. There's an affection there. There's a connection there. The word communion, that shows up twice in 16. Also in 17, where the word partake is also the word koinonia. We koinonia, we partake, we share in that one bread. So Paul says, look, church, when we get together and drink, And we get together and we eat. The meal is not just a casual meal. We don't come to communion night so we can fill up and indulge. We go to Wood Grill Buffet for that. But when we come to the sacred meal, the worship meal, we come to be together. And we're together, Paul says, in a way that God is with us. So that's the first thing he's showing them is that in a sacred meal, the meal speaks of a relationship between the God and the worshiper. So not about the what of the food, although it is for them, the representation of the food, but it's really about Christ that's being worshiped and that's at the center of that meal. That meal honors and enjoys and reminds us of our connection to Christ and his death and his life. So the company, yeah, we're in the company of Christ. When we come to communion, we are there, as Paul said, the cup of blessing which we bless. That when we give thanks, we give thanks to somebody. And that somebody is there in company with us for the meal. And that is Christ. And they would agree with that. They would say, yes, pastor, we understand that. They understood the doctrine of communion. They understood the fellowship with Christ, his blood, his body, receiving it. We receive that. And they would agree. Look at verse 17 before we move on. He says, for we, though many are one bread and one body, for we all, quininea, we all partake of that one bread. See, something else is happening at that meal. Not only does it speak of our relationship with Christ, but what else does it speak of? Our relationship with who? With each other. That's what he said. See, we partake of that one bread, and this gets down to the level, interestingly, of sort of how they looked at a meal and how they looked at molecules. Now, meals, as I said, are intimate things. A meal is a very intimate thing. Now, some places around the world, they don't use silverware. You're aware of this, right? When we go to Nepal and we eat in Nepal, you use your fingers. There's a common dish that's brought out and everybody dips their hand, their grubby little mitts. And I know some of you are making faces like, oh, I can't even imagine. Like pass the hand sanitizer. Ew. And everybody digs in and then you push that into your mouth with your thumb and then you dig back in. And that's pretty intimate, isn't it? I mean, imagine going to the dogwood and somebody taking a bite of their appetizer and saying, oh, this is good. Here, have some. Oh no, I'm trying to cut down. Thank you very much. Some places they use another piece of food as the spoon, like a piece of bread is used to dip. Think about Jesus in the Lord's Supper. Doesn't it say that he dipped in the sop with who? Judas. They dip together into that meal, sharing in that meal together. So Paul is saying, look, as a family, as a group of people, we're many people. Look around there, there's a lot of us. But when I take a loaf of bread or a piece of matzah, That matzah, those wheat molecules and those oil molecules, they've all been mixed up into one and then baked. And then you eat a piece of it and I eat a piece of it. And that same thing, those same molecules from that same wheat that was ground up into one big lump, that nourishes you and nourishes me. So I become one with the God that I'm worshiping and guess with who else? I become one with you because we're eating the same bread and we're sharing the same food and that joins us Together in that context of a sacred meal. That's why Paul says, Look, there's inclusion, and I'm so glad that God has invited me to his table. I mean, I've eaten at some tables, I've eaten in some places, not such good company. But we look around, and when we come to communion, we're reminded that it's Jesus who's inviting you, not me. It's Jesus that invites us. Not only is he the host but he's also the meal himself. And when we come, we enjoy fellowship with him, intimacy with him, and inclusion at his table. It's his table. And he only, by his grace, are we invited to come and partake of this meal together in his house. So he gives another example from their own communion, and then he gives them an example from Israel. He says, take a look at Israel after the flesh. Verse 18, are not those who eat the sacrifices, partakers, or koinonia, of the altar, In other words, Israel had all kinds of feasts that they enjoyed. Seven feasts were recognized throughout the year in Israel. Six of them were true feasts. One of them was a fasting feast, the day of atonement. But six times a year, they would get together to enjoy a feast in the presence of God. Matter of fact, the Old Testament said, don't just take your food and your sacrifices anywhere. Take them to the place where I show you. This is Deuteronomy chapter 12, if you want to look it up take you to the place where I show you and that's where I will meet with you. My presence will dine with you. So when the worshiper brought the sacrifice, they would put part of that on the altar and that would be transformed into smoke and that would be for God. Part of it was utilized by the priests for them and then part of it was given back to the worshiper and the worshiper would have a meal there in honor of the God who then gives them the food. So the idea of the sacrifice is that God has given us the food And we give it to him, and he gives back a portion for our enjoyment. The altar is his altar. Are you with me in that? The altar is his altar. And the meal would be eaten at the place where God is worshiped and his name is honored. So he just gives them two examples to show the importance of the context and the worship of the meal. So, verse 19, Paul asks them the rhetorical question What am I saying then? Am I saying that an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? No, Paul is not saying that. They've already established, and this is why it's confusing, that there's no such thing as false gods. We know that, yes? They knew that. There's no such thing as false gods. So what's the big deal? If there's no such thing as false gods, who cares if I eat at some idol's temple? There's no God anyway. What should it matter? And it seems like now that Paul's prohibiting them from going there, it seems like maybe Paul's changing his tune. I mean, Paul, are you changing your tune? Are now you saying that an idol is something? And he's saying, no, 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 I'm not changing my tune. Look at verse 20. He says, rather, here's what it's about, that the things which the Gentiles, the pagan worshipers, sacrifice, they sacrifice to, uh uh-oh, demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship, koinonia, with demons. Could we say amen to that? I don't want to have fellowship with demons. let's put it this way. Let me explain this. How many of you would say you believe in the existence of Mickey Mouse? Anybody believe in the existence of Mickey Mouse? No, of course we don't. He's a cartoon mouse. He's a cartoon character. But when you take children down to Disney World and they see a larger-than-life Mickey Mouse running and walking around, they are very believing in Mickey Mouse. Now, we know that without the person inside the suit, that suit just lays idle, you could say. It's dead. It does nothing. It can't do anything. There's no existence to it. But when a person gets in it and empowers it, now that suit takes on life. Now, we don't believe in Mickey Mouse, and we know there's no such thing as Mickey Mouse, that it's just a person in a mouse suit. But that person in the mouse suit, I know this is a strange illustration, but hang with me, the person in the mouse suit could use the mouse suit to wield great influence over a child, couldn't they? How many of you saw the article or the video of Pluto chasing around a little kid who grabbed his tail at Disney World a number of years ago? Evidently, a little kid grabbed Pluto's tail and tugged on it, and Pluto got pretty upset with that. And Pluto began to chase this kid around, much to the horror of all the onlooking parents, all around Disney World. So I think Pluto got his walking papers from Walt and the gang. I think he lost his job. But if the person... Because there's a knowledge of and a significance of this Mickey Mouse personality that that person inside the suit could utilize their influence over a child to even lure them away, seduce them away, you could say, from who? From their parents. Could that happen at Disney World? If that person in that suit was evil and wanted to do harm, they could use that opportunity. And that is what Paul is saying. They would agree in the non-reality of a supposed God, whatever God that might be, Zeus or whoever, But like the man in the Mickey suit, the demons use the opportunity of those that go to the idol worship to draw them away and lead them away from Christ. See, it turns out worship in an idol's temple is not as benign as they had thought it would be. And look, I've been overseas to where there are idols' temples, and there is a lot of darkness there. There is a very American view of Buddhism. There is a very American view of Hinduism. But when you go to those places, there is a darkness about it. I can guarantee you. So Paul says the comparison is clear as he's made a contrast between their communion meal and what happens there to what happens at a worship meal in a pagan temple. The comparison is if our worship meal, if our communion gives us intimacy and connection and inclusion and relationship with Christ and his worshipers, Then it naturally follows that a meal eaten in an idol's temple gives you intimacy and connection and inclusion and relationship with the worshipers, not of the idol, but of the demons that empower and that are behind the scenes, leading away from the worship of God. And does Paul just pull this out of a hat? Pick up your Bible, read Deuteronomy chapter 32. Don't look at it now write it down for later, take a note. That's where Paul gets this from. That's what God says through the song of Moses, Deuteronomy 32, what they offer to false gods, they offer to demons. You can check it out for yourself. Anything that draws away from God, draws worship away from God, is idolatrous and is demonically motivated. I mean, imagine a demon calling you up, calling up your phone. Imagine, the Mickey Mouse guy taking off the suit and trying to seduce your child away from you. What would you do? You'd step in, wouldn't you? Please say you would. Yeah, you would. So let's strip off the cover of the idol for a minute and let's just expose the demon behind it. The demon calls up, says, hey, Steve, hey, I'm a demon calling on behalf of my boss, Satan. I just wanted to let you know we're having a dinner over at Satan's house tonight and would love to have you come. I mean, we're just gonna host a little party, a little shindig. There's gonna be some food and some drinks. It's gonna be a great party, a great time. Would love to have you come. There's going to be some people here that you know. They'd love to have you come. Who did you say you were again? Satan? Demons? Uh, Yeah. Well, let me, hold on a second. Should I go? Should I not go? Do you even entertain going to dinner at Satan's house? Some of you have been there. I've been there. Anybody say they danced with the devil before? Dining with the devil? Oh, we have. We've done it. Anybody want to go back? See, what Paul is saying is that we make subtle compromises. Listen carefully, church. What Paul is saying is that for us, it's not that idol's temple. For us, there's gonna be some other application to come in a few minutes. But these things are subtle. There are subtle spiritual influences that act behind the scenes that draw people away from God. And he says it in verse 21. He says, look, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. I mean, you can't do both. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. It doesn't talk about a false guy. This is the table of demons. See, the problem is we think we can. They thought they could. The danger was not that they wanted idols instead of Jesus. The danger is they wanted both. That's the danger. And these things are mutually exclusive. Ladies, ladies, let me talk to the ladies for a second. Let me ask you a question. You're now in the role of a counselor. You're counseling a friend. She calls you up and she says, oh, guess what? And now this is a friend and she's a married woman, happily married woman. And she says, oh, a nice guy that I work with invited me out to dinner, just me and him. He said he just wants to get to know me better. Should I go? Ladies? No, why not? That's awful rude, isn't it? It's just about food. I mean, we're just eating a meal. What could be the big deal of it? You mean there's something else going on besides just a meal? You mean there's some relationship that might be considered there? You mean there's some exclusivity? Why? Because she's already dining, joined herself to her husband. She has no place going and now dining, sharing a meal, an intimate meal, with a man that's not her husband in that context. Correct, ladies? We may not even know why we say no, but we say no. We just know that shouldn't be well, let me ask you this. A couple months ago, I was invited to the Pregnancy Centers of Virginia fundraiser dinner. They asked me to do an opening prayer and it's in the context of a meal, raising money to raise awareness and provide services for women that want to carry their babies full term and not have abortions. It's a wonderful time. I really enjoy going. We have a meal together and we talk about these kind of things, pro-life things. And then what if I was to get a phone call from, well, from the pro-choice group? It said, hey, Steve, we'd love to have you come to our fundraiser dinner. We only think that's fair. And someone I know, a friend of mine is inviting me there. Should I go? Well, I, I could go, but it would be contradictory, wouldn't it? I mean, it would be promoting a message and an affiliation and relationships that I'm not really in favor of. So we recognize that there are choices that have to be made. Or verse 22, do we provoke the Lord the jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I mean, do we really think, Did they think that they could provoke God to jealousy? Is that what you're intending to do by going off and running down to the idol's temple and trying to do both? I mean, are you so bold as to test God's exclusive love? I mean, if it's wrong for the woman to have a meal in the context of worship of another God, of another ideology, then how much more those of us that sit at the Lord's table and call Jesus Christ Lord? Verse 23 now, as he begins to apply all that he's taught us, Verse 23, he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. So they would say, they had been taught, hey, we're not under the law, we're under grace. All things are lawful for me. And Paul doesn't deny that. It's true. We're not under the law. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Yes, all things are lawful for you, but doing that thing just because you can do it might be harmful to you and not helpful. All things are lawful, yes, but not all things edify. There's enough stuff in this world tearing us down. There's enough stuff out there tearing people down. The rule of thumb when we come to the body of Christ and what it is we understand when we break bread together is that we do what we do that we do for the purpose of Building others up. Isn't that interesting? Selfishness tears down a community. Selfishness tears down a home. Selfishness tears down a church. Selfishness tears down a family. But love and sensitivity to others builds up a family, builds up a community, builds up a church. And notice he says, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's. And the word well being is in italics. That means it's not in the original translation. The translators added that to say, here's the gist, here's what's being meant. But it just says, but each one, the other. Each, let each one seek the other. And notice, when Paul says that, he doesn't mean the other who I agree with and who agrees with me. The other who feels the same way about things that I do. What does he mean? In the context of meat and idols, he says, seek the other who's still sensitive to the idolatry. Seek the other's well-being and what's good for their life. Don't stumble them. See, we like to seek the other when they agree with me. But in this context, it's seek the other in these non-essential issues. He says, seek the other who doesn't agree with me. Seek their well-being. And so how does this apply to us, to them? He says, eat whatever's sold in the meat market. So he's just told them, stay away from the idol's temple. Don't go down there, don't get involved with that, where the context is worship of the God. But... If you want to go down to the meat market, now remember, hang with me, the meat market is where if you had an idol's temple and people were worshiping that idol, they were bringing their meat to sacrifice it there and they couldn't possibly eat all that meat. So they sold it in a market to anybody who wanted to buy it. I mean, and you got a good deal on the meat because, you know, it was a good price. It was a surplus. So the Christians, now they're going, oh no, can we not eat that meat? Paul says, don't go to the temple, but if you want to go to the market, Buy a rack of ribs, take it home and cook it up. Go for it. No big deal. You see how important context is? And he says, eat whatever sold the meat market. Don't ask questions for conscience sake. I mean, there you are looking at this beautiful rack of ribs. It's on sale. The price has been dropped. I mean, you're getting it for a song. And then you go, I don't know. Where's it from? Was it sacrificed to an idol or was it not? Don't ask. It's the old don't ask, don't tell policy. You don't believe in idols. There's no other gods. So who cares? It's just food. And aren't we glad that we can enjoy ribs? Yes. The meat eaters are going, praise the Lord. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's in all of its fullness. Who created ribs? God did. Put all that luscious meat between those ribs. Who created barbecue? I mean, we can enjoy this. Why? Because it's all the Lord's. It all belongs to him. So we have the freedom in a private context to indulge. You see, context matters even for us. If you think about it, I've said before, and I can't say from Scripture that a Christian can never drink alcohol. Now, for some Christians, drinking alcohol in any context is possibly illegal and definitely not good. It could be sin. But other Christians don't have an issue with that and can have a glass of wine today and never not have another one for a year. It's not a big deal. But have that glass of wine at home, or have that glass of wine at a church that still uses wine for communion, or have that glass of wine at a bar during happy hour, you've got different contexts, and they might demand different answers, correct? I mean, if someone said to me, hey, Pastor Steve, we're going to go down and grab a couple of beers at happy hour and do some evangelism at the local bar, what do you think? What do you think I'm going to say? That's a bad idea. That's a really bad idea. Why? Because worship is happening. You know, they had a God of wine. The God Bacchus was the God of wine. And guess how you worshipped Bacchus? Drunkenness. You went there to drink. The music was playing. There was food out. There was an intent. By the end of the night, it was no longer happy. There was happy hour for a time, but then happy hour quickly becomes unhappy hour hanging your head in the toilet. That is a whole other story. So context made me think about context of my own life. And if you want to do evangelism, Paul says there's other ways to do it. Watch this, verse 27. If any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner, hey, unbelievers invite you to dinner. Then he says, well, you should probably stay away because they're not Christians and they worship idols. Does he say that? What's it say in your Bible? If you want to go, he says, eat whatever's said before you, asking no questions for conscience. So if your neighbor, who's a worshiper of Zeus, invites you for dinner. Paul doesn't say, segregate yourself. He doesn't say, stay away from them. That would be unchristlike, like wouldn't it? Did not our Christ eat with who? Sinners and who? A little guy named Zacchaeus. Not just a tax collector, but the tax collector. Remember the story? He climbs up in the little sycamore tree and he sees Jesus and Jesus says, hey, Zach, put on the ribs. I'm coming up. He didn't say put on the ribs. Jesus didn't say that. He said, I'm coming to your house. He was the chief tax collector. Jesus said, I'm coming to your house for dinner tonight. We're going to dine together. So in a private context, in the context of neighbor relations, he says, go ahead, have dinner with your neighbor. I think you should. I think more Christians should engage their unsaved neighbors. And if they don't invite you for dinner, you invite them over. How else are people going to know about Christ except through the relationship you foster? Now, again, don't do it at the idol's temple. Don't do idol temple evangelism. Do it in your home. Invite them over for a meal because now the worship setting is different. So when you go, don't ask questions. So, oh, was this meat sacrificed to idols? If they don't say anything and you'll ask, who cares, let's eat. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to an idol, then he says, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you And for conscience sake, why? For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, is this a typo? Is this a misquote? Paul just quoted the same quote for saying that you should eat as for saying that you shouldn't eat. Hey, that's wisdom and understanding how to apply scripture. He says, you go over and now they're serving up the burgers. And as they serve up the burgers, they say to you, understanding that you're a Christian, hey, by the way, just so you know, This was sacrificed to idols. And we know that you Christians don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Their conscience of it, not your conscience of it. I mean, it'd be sort of be like, let's say you go over to someone's house for a meal and you're on probation and you had DUIs and you can no longer drink alcohol. And there you are for a meal and they're getting out the wine for everyone. They say, oh, but wait a second. We know you can't have any because it's illegal for you. You're on probation. See, there's a sensitivity to your restrictions or your perceived restrictions. Now, you might have gone and said, well, I'll have it, nobody's going to find out. But they're perceiving it on your behalf, their conscience. You know, not in the probation category, but in terms of the idolatry, you know there's no such thing as a false god. You could drink it. But they're sensitive. And so Paul says, if they have a sensitivity to it, don't take it, don't eat it for their sake. That's the issue. That's always the issue with Paul. It's always about sensitivity to the other. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's. We don't have a freedom because the earth is the Lord's to stumble people or offend people with our freedom. Why? Because it's God's. It's all God's. It's not mine to do with as I please. Conscience, verse 29, he says, I say, not your own. You know that it's no big deal. You know that you can have it. But that of the other, the unsaved person. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, Why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? So the first thing to remember as you're making decisions in general is a sensitivity to others. That's what Paul says, not your own conscience, but the sensitivity of the other person's awareness and consciousness of it. Context is everything, and something that could be okay here may not be okay there, and real wisdom comes in when you look at a situation and you say, "How? listen carefully, how does this affect others? How does this affect the people I'm eating with? How does this affect the people that I'm around, the people in my community? So that's the first thing to ask yourself. Not just how does it affect me? What is my right? What can I do? What can I have to have the freedom to enjoy? But what about the people around me? I see this all the time in the Christian world. A mission trip a number of years ago in Ukraine, a young man that had just got free from ecstasy and alcohol and the mission team took it upon themselves to go out for dinner and have beer at dinner. They didn't know that this guy was two weeks sober. They had no way of knowing. They didn't ask. They didn't know. They took their freedom. When I'm in mixed company, I never take that kind of freedom. Never, ever. Because I have no idea who I'm eating with and how it might stumble them when I take freedoms like that. A second thing you can think of is verse 31. Paul says, therefore, as he wraps it up, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, a general principle that applies beyond their local situation. Whatever you do, do all how? To the glory of God. Can I do that thing and say, hey, this is to the glory of God? Can you, can you bad mouth the other person in church and say, to the glory of God? If you can't do it, then you probably shouldn't do it. How do we reveal the glory of God? God is awesome. Is he not God is glorious. The way we give God glory, the way we do something to the glory of God is we just let him be who he is because he is so glorious in himself. My job, get out of the way and let people see the glory of God. And I do that and I do that most when I am selfless. I reveal the glory of God to others when I think selflessly and act selflessly because isn't that what Christ did? Was Christ selfish? That Jesus, he's so selfish. No, he is so other-centered. We have a completely selfless God willing to give his only son for our salvation. So whatever you do, you can run it by that test. Does this give God glory? What's the effect it has on others? Does it give God glory? And then he wraps it up and he says, give no offense in these food-related issues, either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Be sensitive to everybody involved. Again, these are non-essential matters. doesn't matter if I eat meat or not. I can say no to it. I can say yes to it. It's no big deal. Not a matter of sin or not. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. For Paul, it was never about what do I get out of it, what's in it for me. It was always about building bridges to other people and always opening the door through my behavior to share Christ with them so that they might be saved. How important is that drink to you? How important is that food? How important is a sensitivity to the other if, in fact, a relationship with them will help you lead them to Christ? Is there anything more important than their eternal life? So, chapter 11, verse 1 actually fits best with chapter 10. Paul winds it up by saying, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Imitate me in what? In that I don't live to please myself. In that I'm never seeking my own profit. In that I'm willing to give up a freedom if it means building a bridge to have a relationship with someone. Imitate me. Is that what your kids see, moms and dads? Can you say to your kids, imitate me as I imitate Christ? Do they see in you that selflessness of Christ? There's a lot of examples to imitate out there, aren't there? And our culture is full of examples of selfishness. Matter of fact, even now in the switch over our government, the comments that are being made is that we are more tribal than ever in our country. And in the midst of that, the selfishness. Paul says, go have a meal with your neighbor. Go have a meal with your unsaved neighbor. Let them know about Christ. Could be, could be the thing that changes their life forever. And if they don't invite you, you invite them. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. What would the church be like if that was the way we lived? Can you say that? Can you say that to each other? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. It puts feet to, let's be doers of the word and not hearers only. Amen, church? Father, I pray that you would have our exclusive love, our exclusive attention, an exclusive relationship, Lord. We are yours and no others. We identify with you. We belong to you. We're gonna show up at your table because we're your children. That's where we belong, with you. Pray that no other table, No other voice, no other spiritual demonic presence would have any sway over our lives. And I pray that we would flee from any such thing. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen.